Welcome to the Value Investor TV podcast. This is the podcast that helps you grow your wealth and become financially independent. My name is Becco, and today's guest, Kevin Carter. This is uh, this is the part two of this uh, this this podcast where we go into uh, kind of go into topics ranging from American election, what this means for investors, and going to some of the names that that Kevin is is is, is really interested in. If you haven't listened to the first episode, please do that before you come to this one. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there that Kevin really uh, was graciously sharing with the, the, the audience and myself about, um, about value versus index, indexing, uh, different types of value investing, old age, new age, some of, the, some of the elements that are in his checklist. For example, recurring revenue, what moat means as it relates to income statements, um, returns on capital. Uh, and, and some of the risks involved in going into emerging markets. We talk about all of that good stuff in the first part of, that, of the episode. So check that out if you haven't. Um, and so we will roll right through. Okay, welcome back, Kevin. Good to be back. All right, so American election. Wow, lots of, lots of firework. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, you know... It's um, it's obviously a turbulent time for the country, not just because of the election, but of course the coronavirus, and the election, the run up to the election has been pretty, uh, you know, pretty turbulent, um, to say the least, and obviously the stock market has been reacting to it, um, and as an investor, as a value investor, you should really be looking for a long term investment, you know, things like this, um, you know, sort of. The proclivity of the market to react to news is obviously going to be there, but as an investor, you should look beyond that and try to project, uh, try to find companies that can that can stand, kind of withstand the political kind of, you know, political turmoils, if you will. Um, but let me ask you this, Kevin: How are you thinking about the American election and what this means for you, and especially what this means for you as it relates to your 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 investment bent, uh, investment bent uh, towards the emerging markets? Well, you know, first of all, I'm sort of troubled by our current situation. I mean, as I tell people, I did a, a, a webinar for a European group last week uh, before the election, and I basically said, look, we have a, essentially a civil war. We have uh, whoever wins the election, 49% uh, of the people are going to think the world's coming to an end. So, somewhere between 49 and 51% of people are going to think the world's coming to an end, no matter who wins. And we have, uh, in our cities, we have armed groups that are lined up, you know, 50 or 60 armed people on one side, lined up across, you know, from 50 people on the other side. And there's violence and, and shooting, and it's like a civil war, but an, unlike, a, you know, a uh, our last civil war, there's no geographic line where you're not, you know, you can go back onto your side. Well, here it's, it's the communities are, are divided. And so I've, I find that to be very troubling that, I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to have an election and, and, you know, have it be a close election, but it's another thing when, when the streets are filled with, with violent uh, participants on both sides. So that's, that's been troubling. Um, in terms of the election, you know, I, I'm about as apolitical as you can get. And uh, uh, I, you know, I, I know that the, the current president, you know, I, 
I, and I, I know that a lot of his supporters feel the same way, but I just, the, the, the tone of his uh, conduct is, is a little bit grating to me, and I, and I think maybe to some other people. But in terms of the policies of the, you know, the guys that are in there now or the new guys, I don't really have an opinion, with, with one important exception, and, and as I told the people in Europe, the only reason that I, I guess I, I wanted Joe Biden to win is because Peter Navarro, who some of your listeners may know who he is, I think he's the most dangerous man in the world, and he's part of the, the, uh, the current president's uh, economic team, and he's sitting at the table with the Chinese, and this is a man that hates China in a major way, and I've never met anybody. I've met Peter. We were on a panel together, and I actually rode in his car to a dinner at the Milken Institute 12 years ago, and he, he's, I think, a very dangerous man on us. I think the whole world economy and the world will be better by him not being there. So, um, and uh, although I guess we're not even sure that's totally going to happen because they're still saying they're going to uh, contest the election. So, um, I think that if, if Biden does in fact uh, take the presidency as it appears he should, I think that will be good for uh, for the world economy and and for uh, in particular our relationship with China. Mm-hmm. And, and this is obviously a particular. Uh, this is obviously a particular interest to you as you are investing in, in uh, Chinese companies or are heavily involved in the emerging markets. And obviously, with the Trump presidency, there has been a lot of you know, pff, you know fighting words between China and the U.S. And of course, uh, you know, of course, like the trade war and and uh, sort of uh, the the jostling between China and U.S. over uh, dominance over technology, right? How Huawei and, and et cetera. And 5G technology, obviously, a lot of a lot of contention between the two countries, two powerful countries. There, do you are you are you optimistic that things will uh, improve for the better between the two countries, or are people correct in believing that this is going to be a fight that's going to last centuries? Well, um, I'm not optimistic. I, I'll tell you that you know. 12 or 13 years ago, after I had been focused on China for a few years and I had spent a decent amount of time there and I had developed some friendships and relationships with uh, some Chinese, um, I remember having this thought that, you know what, Americans are going to realize what a great place this is. This is a beautiful culture. It's been the largest economy in the world for 48 of the last 50 centuries. And... uh, and people are going to warm up to this place, and, and they're not going to have all these negative stereotypes about China. And I was wrong, because if we had to make a chart to track U.S.-China relations, it's, it's making new lows every month. And, and, uh, and I'm not optimistic about that changing. I know uh, that, uh, that uh, lots of people have very negative views about China, and, uh, and I think it's unfortunate. And I think that one thing that I realized after I started to, to you know, understand China, what I, what I came to believe is that all of the adjectives and adverbs that are used in the U.S. to describe China or anything about China, whether it's the GDP numbers or the government or whatever, every adjective and adverb are so decidedly negative or suspicious about China. And 
And that permeates people. I mean, I have people that have never been to China that have all these terrible things to say about it, and they're so right, and, and, and they have no, never once been on the ground there, but they're sure of this, that, or the other thing. They're making up the numbers or, or what have you. So I'm not optimistic, and I think it's unfortunate. And I think that, you know, I think what troubles me the most is this idea that we're number one, and if you look like you're, no, you're going to be number one, if you're going to earn the number one spot in something, we don't want you. We, we will block you. We will do everything we can to block you from being number one. And it, it, it bothers me. I just, I, it doesn't seem very capitalist to me to, to take that approach. But that, that I think, is a, a good summary of, of how the U.S. has is, is approached this. Mm -hmm. And I think, obviously, with the COVID-19 originating from Wuhan, I think there has been, it has sort of added as a fuel to that negative adjective that you were talking about there. Well, to be honest with you, I'm surprised that that element of it hasn't become a bigger deal, particularly with the people that really hate China. Because it, you know, the, I, I know early on the, the Trump called it a, a, the China virus and, and that ruffled some feathers. But the, it is China virus. It came from Wuhan, right? As far as we can tell. So, it, I, and, and, Considering the, the vitriol and the anger, you know, within our own political system and, you know, and, and, um, uh, and I guess this is more of a, a right wing thing than a left wing thing. But the, it just seems to me that people would have been like much more angry about it. I, and, and because their economy's barely gotten hurt at all, They're, they haven't had to throw trillions of dollars at it, and they've got the, the coronavirus under control. I mean, they have gone weeks without any outbreaks, and they get in, they've been able to, you know, to the extent they get outbreaks, they, they've limited them to 300 people. And meanwhile, you know, we have tens of thousands and, and hundreds of thousands of people, and so I'm actually a little surprised that that hasn't become more... Of a, of, a, of a sort of verbal weapon or just a reason to rally people against China. Um, so but I, I, really, I am very surprised that hasn't been more of the, uh, of the tone. Yeah, that's a good point. That's actually a good point. Okay, so let's uh, shift gears here a little bit and talk about uh, some of the names and EMQQ. And... For those of you who haven't listened to the first episode, Kevin is the founder of EMQQ, the Emerging Markets Internet and E-Commerce ETF. You can look it up by looking at the ticker symbol EMQQ, EMQQ. It's in uh, New York Stock Exchange. Some of the companies that are in that in that ETF, um, we before the podcast, uh, we we kind of sorted out five or six of them that we want to talk about uh, to go into details as to why Kevin is excited about these uh, uh, five to six companies. So they are Alibaba, Tencent, Paytm, and Mercado Libre. And then uh, if we have time, we'll we talk about some other some other names. But let's start with those for now. So sure. Kevin, uh, quick, you know, quick kind of let's let's do this in like a quick kind of pitch kind of like um, style. So Alibaba, what 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 excites you about Alibaba? And by the way, we're recording this episode on 11th, November 11th, so. That's right, Singles Day. Well, on that note, what excites me is that uh, the Singles Day, which is the Chinese shopping festival, 
concluded uh, this morning our time. And between today and the first two days of the festival, they had $74 billion of sales. Uh, so that's uh, exciting. I mean, people don't realize how big the scale of China's e-commerce market is. And Alibaba uh, dominates it, or at least has you know, got the, the largest piece of that. And, and so what I like about it is its growth and margins. It's very profitable. And, um, but very importantly, and this is the case with Alibaba and Tencent, it's not just, you know, you can call Tencent the Facebook of China or Alibaba kind of the Amazon, but, but these companies don't have U.S. equivalents. And because in emerging markets, and in China, of course, being one of those, the consumption infrastructure is underdeveloped. And by consumption infrastructure, I mean people don't have bank accounts with debit cards. People don't have televisions on the wall with a thousand channels. People don't have Target stores. And so these companies become, they're competing in every consumer vertical. They're competing in healthcare. Alibaba's got its own you know, separate publicly traded healthcare business. Uh, Tencent has a healthcare business that's likely to come public. Uh, they're in entertainment. Uh, Tencent's uh, music and you know, the Spotify of China is part of Tencent. And um, they're in grocery stores. Alibaba's uh, grocery store is by far the most amazing thing I've ever seen in, in China is the Hema market, which is literally if you combine the Jetsons with Whole Foods, uh, what you'd see. But the fintech part of the story is the biggest part of the story. And so uh, I think the reason to, to like Alibaba and to like Tencent is that they've got a lot of room to go in all parts of the uh, consumption story in ways that their U.S. counterparts cannot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, we talked about this before the podcast started, the financial side of Alibaba and obviously with the and financial I mean, that is a mega, I mean, that is a blockbuster IPO right there. Uh, you want to say a couple of words about Ant Financials? And, and unfortunately, it's well, sort of been paused, right? So maybe you could uh, add some color to it, that. It, yeah, it went from the world's largest IPO ever to the largest broken trade ever. Um, so, yeah, Ant Group is, a, is was, you know, we were excited about it as a coming out party for this fintech part of the story. This really is the biggest sub-theme that we see in the emerging markets internet sector is all these people leapfrog the traditional bank account and go straight to phone-based uh, money. And once you get the money on the phone, you can get into insurance products, credit products, investments. And Ant Group, Alibaba's fintech subsidiary, was the very embodiment of that. And it was, uh, as mentioned, it was going to be the largest IPO ever. It's a monster business. It's very profitable. It's growing at 40%. And um, so the fintech part of the story is clearly a big deal. But, but the IPO got pulled, and it's, not, it's still not clear totally why. But I think there was a combination of three things. First of all, you know, financial services are a regulated business, and uh, the, the regulations for online lending have been um, in flux in China. They've had some problems. I mean, the growth has been incredible, and so they're trying to make sure they've got the, the regulations around it in place. And uh, I think Jack Ma was a little frustrated a few weeks ago and made some comments at a conference that basically, you know, in a, in a, in a derogatory way, described the uh, powers that be and the existing regulatory structure. And uh, they didn't like that. 
And, uh, but I think the reality was they also felt like they needed to have uh, these businesses, you know, regulated. And, and, and in the case of Ant Group, you know, it, had, it, it really is a disruptor. If ever there's a disruptor on this planet uh, in, fin, in financial services, it's been Alibaba. And they uh, have become a financial supermarket for all, everything financial that 700 million people in China use every day. And, and the, the, the problem was that they were sort of disruptive to start with, and they, just, they were sort of pressured to um, uh, pivot their business. And so they went, they, they went from a disruptor to an enabler. And so they said, okay, we'll just provide the plumbing for all the existing banking system, which a lot of it's state-owned. And so they then became sort of a clearinghouse for loans by the banks. But then they, they did that so well that that was, became a disruptor, where they were making a lot of money and more money than the banks were themselves, and they weren't taking the risk. as They, they were getting the profits, but then giving the risk out to the banks. And so they were su such a strong enabler that they, be they became a disruptor again. And, and I, the government basically put a halt to the IPO. And I think a lot of it also was that, you know, you had $3 trillion of, of demand for a $35 billion IPO. So the, the, the IPO was way oversubscribed, and the Chinese stock market's already been sort of in a frenzy. And I think that uh, between those two factors, and importantly, the Chinese mainland stock market is Robin Hood times five. You know, we talk about how retail volume in the U.S. has gone from 10% to 15%. Every day in China is Robin Hood Day. It's 80% retail. And, and they're a very frenzied group of investors, and they're prone to bubbles and, and, and crashes. And so, anyhow, yeah, they pulled the IPO, so uh, they'll, they're going to probably have to rein in some of the elements of, of the Ant Group's business model. But, um, but the fintech story is a big deal. And uh, I, frankly, I'm, I'm kind of glad that they pulled the IPO because I, it, it was feeling almost too hot to handle based on the leverage and the, and the demand and so forth. Yeah. Some of the, uh, you know, before we started the podcast, we started talking about, uh, you know, this uh, article that came out th this morning on uh, Wall Street Journal talking about the, the uh, you know, the Chinese, the Chinese government cracking down on big tech, right? The Chinese big tech, Alibaba, Tencent, and et cetera. And you're mentioning that, you know, Oh, I guess we were discussing what what could come out of it. Like, what could be the end result of this crackdown? Is it going to be something similar to what we were seeing here in American soil, where you got big tech, you know, Google, Facebook, the fan companies being challenged for their tech supremacy locally? Are they going to be broken up? Do you see that happening in China as well? Like, can Alibaba and Tencent be, be after all, be broken up? Is that is that something that's in the realm of possibilities here? Well, I think anything's in their own possibilities, but you're right. So we've got, you know, we've had sort of a, a one-two punch uh, on uh, the China internet space in the last uh, five days, right? So you had the breaking the ant deal that had some regulatory uh, elements to it, and then uh, m uh, Monday or yesterday, the news that the Chinese government is, you know, redrafting monopoly rules and, uh, and in particular, um, noting the internet companies. So. And that, and that led to, between those two things, a, a decent sell-off um, in uh, what had been a pretty hot group. And so, you know, regulatory risk is, is an issue everywhere. And, and um, 
And it's it's certainly not unique to China. I mean, I, I don't pay too close attention to this, but it seems like Amazon or Google or these people are like in front of Congress all the time, get, you know, getting accused of something. And as we mentioned earlier, I mean, I, it seems like every few months I see some Google fine for billions of dollars to some country or the European Union or whoever. So, so, um, but on the flip side, monopoly is a good thing to have. I mean, it's, you know, there's a, uh, there's a reason why monopolies are illegal. It's because you can make a lot, a lot of money. And so if you're, if you're anywhere close to being looked at like that, you've obviously got something going on good for you. And now in terms of breaking them up, um, you could see them break up into pieces. And, and I think, at least uh, in some cases, historically, that's been better for shareholder value, right? If you break them up and then they, be, they become even more competitive uh, independently. And I think we saw that when they broke up AT&T. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they did actually break up Alibaba or one of these things. It's, it, it doesn't seem to me... Uh, that that necessarily means the value is not you know it's going to destroy value. In fact, it could unleash value. So I don't I don't think it's a very much of a long shot that they'll actually break up these companies because these companies the Chinese government knows these companies are very very important to its future. People, a lot of people that you know going back to our other discussion you know people don't like China they don't trust China they think the Chinese government's evil and they're going to repossess Alibaba. And that nothing can be further from the truth. The Chinese government knows that capitalism works better than a lot of people in our government, including uh, some of the people uh, in my part of the country that represent us. So I think it's highly unlikely that uh, they're going to do anything um, uh, to, to crush or any, in any way hurt Alibaba or Tencent in a meaningful way. But they, but Having said that, they, you know, there's reasons why we have these types of laws, both for banks and, and, and for monopolies. And so I think uh, they will prudently apply them as needed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited to see what will happen uh, with Tencent and Alibaba um, so, and financial, of course. So shifting gears here a little bit, uh, you know, we talked a lot about China, the Chinese companies, Alibaba, Tencent. Let's shift gears and talk about Paytm. Paytm, yes. So, um, Paytm is the Indian payments leader, and now this is a private company uh, right now, uh, so it's not you can't buy the stock, but um, it's it's one of my favorite companies. And the reason, first of all, you you can if you own Alibaba, you end you end up owning about a half of, of Paytm. So you know, amongst the other things that Alibaba and Tencent are. They're also massive, massive venture capital investors. So they've got hundreds of uh, other emerging market internet companies they've invested in. And Paytm is one of my favorites. And what I like about Paytm, first of all, India's got an enormous population. They are coming online very quickly and getting their first ever smartphone, their first ever uh, internet access. They don't have traditional bank accounts. You have a government that's very, very set on digitizing everything in the economy, and, and they're literally taking banknotes out of circulation uh, at some points over the last few years. So, so it's got so many macro uh, tailwinds, 
and um, and then Berkshire Hathaway is involved. So the other the other reason I, I like Paytm is because Berkshire Hathaway made an investment in the company in 2018 along with SoftBank. So that's one to watch, but it's not public yet. Um, there's really, unfortunately, the, there's not as many public uh, Indian internet companies as we would like. Uh, there's only a few, and they're not the, the bigger ones. The bigger ones are still private. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited for India. You know, I'm watching it very closely. Um, I think there's a lot of potential in India as well. You know, if you know, I, th- I think about it this way, and I want to get your opinion on this. If 2010, right, starting in 2010 to 2020 or 2020 was a year of the Chinese ascendance, if you will, right? It really became this the decade of Chinese growth. And I think this coming decade, and perhaps a decade after that, I think it could be it could be a decade of it could be the decade for India, where where India really what? comes online in a, in a very significant way. Well, they're definitely coming online and uh, and getting their computers in form of an Android-based smartphone. But India's got some challenges. I mean, you know, I, I remember in my early emerging market days, people would say, "Oh, but it's it's the world's largest democracy." Okay, well, that that might be true, but you know, the the there are s- some pretty significant advantages to n- not having a democracy, as China uh, doesn't. And they can get stuff done a lot faster. And and the other thing about India is, it while the British left it with democracy, they also left it with the world's biggest bureaucracy. And so it's hard to get stuff done there. And uh, I know, you know, 15 years ago we thought, oh, well, India is going to be coming along hot on China's heels, and China just continues to pull away and, and get further and further ahead. And uh, and that's because of, of you know the the the, the um, authoritarian or whatever, however you want to describe the Chinese system, as contrasted with a with a big bureaucracy. And so you've got infrastructure deficiencies. You have literally brownouts where the you know the Intel factory can't operate because there's no power. So uh, those are some of the challenges I think to their uh, to their growth. But but they will grow. And uh, and and they will certainly grow uh, uh, as an internet-based population, and that's in terms of the slope of the curve. I mean, that will be the steepest amount of growth. But the the base in China now is so much larger that even growing a third as quick, uh, they're growing. They're putting up more growth yeah. on an absolute basis. Yeah. So let's uh, switch gears one last time and go to South America. Mercado Libre. Yes. So Mercado Libre is uh, a great business, and it's been a great stock for us. And uh, Mercado Libre is, uh, you know, it's it's the e-commerce and the fintech pay, you know, payments leader in every country from Mexico to Brazil, including a lot of frontier markets that aren't even, you know, really investable, but where, where Mercado Libre is thriving. And so They've always been the, the leader in e-commerce, but the, the fintech part of the business there has really exploded, and it's 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 the it's the, if, you know if I had to point to one reason we knew that this fintech thing was so big in e, and it was that for the last couple of years, Mercado Libre's stock has doubled in each of the last two years, largely as a result of an acceleration in their fintech business, and um, uh, so. Uh, uh, it's a it's a big company. It's an important company, and it's got a long way to go. The the 
uh, uh, e-commerce penetration is half in, in South America. It's half of the penetration rate you find in Asia. So it's still pretty early. And, um, uh, and it's, it's also a very well-run company. And you know, when I talk about it with people, I'm like, look, you think about like, how you want to invest in Brazil. Right now, the company is technically an Argentinian company, so on the fact sheet it'll say Argentina, and it does operate in Argentina, and it's headquartered there. But they operate in every country from again Mexico to Brazil, with Brazil being the largest. And and this is a company that was founded by a Stanford grad student while he was at Stanford. It counted Michael Spence, the Nobel Prize-winning Stanford economist, as an early board member. eBay was an early strategic shareholder, and. And so you think, okay, how do I want to get exposure to Brazil? You want Mercado Libre. Well, guess what? Mercado Libre is not in the, the Vanguard fund or the iShares fund, right? This, this company gets left out of the traditional indexes. And meanwhile, Petrobras, the corrupt oil company in Brazil, is in the index funds twice. So how do you want to get the exposure to emerging markets? So you know, kind of going back to something we talked about earlier, you can't just go buy the broad market. You'll get, you'll, there's a lot of I, problems. Um, so Mercado Libre, I think, is exactly the kind of company you, you want to look for, and, and it's been a big. Uh, uh, our shareholders have had you know good success in owning that the last couple of years. Fantastic! I think that's actually a good segue into into the last part of this ep- uh, this part this episode, which is you know something that we talked about in the part in the previous episode also, but I think we should uh, emphasize this. Um, you know, th- thanks again for coming on, Kevin, and and if people would like to get involved and, and, and learn about uh, the EMQQ, your index, uh, or so your ETF, and, and just to learn about you and your story, um, how, can, how can they get in touch? How can, how can uh, people get involved? Uh, yeah. Sure. Well, the easiest way is to find me on LinkedIn, uh, type in my name, EMQQ, and I should pop up. Um, and you can also go to our website. So I've got uh, the EMQQ uh, ETF.com website. And uh, and then my my more, the place where I do my more active investing is BigTreeCapital.com. Uh, so EMQQETF or or BigTreeCapital.com, you'll find me. Awesome. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you, Kevin. I'm sure a lot of our audience really enjoyed the discussion, ranging from you know emerging markets, uh, going really deep into several companies, and really talking about you know American election and whatnot. We covered a lot of topics, so it was really 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 awesome podcast. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And thanks again, Kevin. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks, guys.